that you're here today. It's not an accident that you're here today. It's not an accident that I can't preach from the microphone today. I'm, I'm stuck right here because a uh, battery issue. No, no big deal. But if y'all see me start wandering away, say, hey, get back to the, hey. If you could, I don't know what's about to happen here, so. All right. If you could tell someone. Yeah. Good work, Connell. If you could tell someone ten things. Ten things about yourself that distinguishes you from others. What would those things be? Now think about that for just a moment. Ten things about yourself that distinguishes you from others, what would those things be? It it probably wouldn't be generic things, right? Like, well, I have two ears. It would probably include aspects of your personality. It would include maybe your talents or maybe your lack of skills like Napoleon Dynamite or whatever. but But the point is, there are things about you that make you who you are. This is true of churches as well. What makes Perryville Second Baptist Church distinct is, is not that we have a church building, not that we have a steeple, not that we sing songs. Those are not bad things, but they aren't what make us distinct. And so in this series that we're looking at now, we're looking at ten distinctives of Perryville Second Baptist Church. We've paused in Ephesians And we're starting the new year thinking through what is it that makes us distinct as a church. And we're working in this series to identify who we are by identifying Christ's vision for the church. In one sense, it's like the Ephesians series has has led us to this point. Much of what we're going to talk about is actually in Ephesians. And we've covered a lot of what we're talking about in Ephesians in, in one way or another. But... Of course, we had no way of knowing that, that where we're going to be today was where we, where we had no way of knowing that where we are today is where we were going to be when Ephesians began. That was in September of 2020. That's what I'm trying to communicate. But, but this is how the Lord's good providence works. A secret and good providence for the glory of Christ, the good of His church. And so we pause the Ephesians series. We take up Christ's vision for the church. We're thinking about 10 biblical distinctives. I've, I gave them to you last week, but they're all mapped out for you in, in the foyer. Grab a copy. I'm going to read that preamble again. We believe that our Lord Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, risen from the dead and now seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, as King of all, and this is such an important line here, is worthy of a healthy church in Perryville, Arkansas. So we believe taking these ten distinctives together sets us apart as a local church in the location where God has planted us. These distinctives do not exhaust all of our beliefs as a body, but they are a non-negotiable part of who we are as a local church. We hold these truths according to the Bible for the purpose of the good of one another and our community and ultimately for Christ's honor and glory. So last week we covered biblical sufficiency. We believe the Bible is the inerrant, infallible, authoritative, sufficient, necessary, clear word of God. And this lays the groundwork for everything else. We really believe what the book says. So this morning, turn to Matthew 7. 
Our second distinctive that we'll cover is biblical holiness. Christ's vision for his church is that it would be full of regenerate people who live holy lives, doing the will of the Father together for the glory of God. This is not a gimmick for us. This is not a game for us. This is not optional for us. We desire holiness in this church because our King, the Lord Jesus, warns us against any form of Christianity that isn't holy. And we desire holiness here because we desire to do what the King desires us to do. And we desire holiness here because we desire to bring honor and glory to our King. Matthew chapter 7. An interesting passage, I understand. But we're going to read it because it's so important. So Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23. Would you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand the reality of this text. Lord, we we don't want to see this text used as a club in an unnecessary way, but rather as a surgeon's scalpel. scalpel. And Lord, that uh, you would use it to cut into us this morning in any area that we need. And we would understand the reality of false conversion, that we'd understand the necessity of biblical holiness, that we would love your truth. We love your ways. Show us Christ today. And let us desire to follow him. Lord, today perhaps there are one or two or more in this room who are not truly converted. If that's the case, I pray their heart would not be hardened today, but it'd be soft and tender and hear what Christ has to say. And they would respond in repentance and faith. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to articulate these distinctives well. Remember our motivation. Our motivation is that Christ is worthy of a healthy church in this place. And we pray that you would move among us today by the Holy Spirit, that he would work we pray it all for the glory of our King. Amen. You may be seated. Biblical holiness. I'll read that. It's in your outline, but it's also in the distinctives in the foyer. But we believe that God really and truly saves the vilest of sinners by his marvelous grace through the righteous life, prophetic fulfillment, vicarious death and victorious resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are truly born again persevere in grace and holiness. We acknowledge the sad reality of false converts in our day and teach and preach against false assurance. That is, those who say they are Christians, but display no demonstrable love for Christ, His Word, His ways, the local church, and His mission. We believe that genuine Christians desire to be a holy people and because they follow Christ will ultimately be hated by the world. 
Holiness is defined by God's book. Now, there are many passages in the Bible. It's strange that we've landed here today in a sense because there's so many passages in the Bible that we could have gone to to talk about the subject of the holiness of God's people. But as I thought about this, as I prayed about this, I thought it prudent to go to the go-to passage, as it were, about false conversions and then work out the need for holiness and the reality of holiness from there. All right, so let me state this up front. There are people. Now, this isn't just my idea. Okay? This is from the text. There are people who profess to be followers of Christ, who profess to be saved, who profess today to be Christians, who will go to hell. That's sober. Listen to the text. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness. This is not as though people came to savingly know Christ and then they didn't just keep up their end of the bargain and then so Jesus says, well then, get out of here. No, no, no. He says, I never knew you. Okay, so again, to restate it, there are people who profess to be Christians today, who profess to be saved, who are in church, maybe even in this room, who say that they are Christians and they will go to hell. And it is because of this reality today that we prize biblical holiness. I'll explain that connection in a bit. But first, let's deal with our passage. I want to explore this morning whether or not you have properly responded to Christ. I don't want to see a single person in this room. I don't want to see a single person in our community. To stand before Jesus on the day of judgment and have him say to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's read this passage again. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Two things I want to point out before we get into the outline. The first is, did you notice how Christ-saturated this text is? What I mean is 13 times... In these three verses, Jesus is referred to directly. And and with the pronouns and all that, he is the one speaking. Jesus, let me just tell you something very, very clearly. And and I'm saying it in a reverent way. But Jesus has a very high view of Jesus. In other words, he's not asking anyone else's opinion here. He's saying, 
I, 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 not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Listen, as you think about that, would you just, would you just for a moment, would you think on the loveliness and majesty of Christ? Okay, on one hand, and I've preached this before, and I want to make sure that we, 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 this is biblical. So on one hand, we want to maintain this reality. There is no more authority in these words in Matthew chapter 7 than there is in, say, Romans chapter 9. You say, well, well, I put Jesus, the words of Jesus in red in my Bible above Paul's words. No, 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 we don't do that because we understand the reality that from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 and everywhere in between, the whole Bible is the word of God, right? So we don't rank parts of the scripture. All of it, all of it is breathed out by God. So we want to maintain that. Yet... Also, when we hear our Lord Jesus speaking, we don't want to, we don't want to dismiss the reality and the beauty and the majesty of the incarnation. Here is Christ. Here is the, the lovely and beautiful and majestic Christ before us. And listen, listen, these words that he's giving to us, these are not heavy handed words. These are not words that he is trying to bruise his church with. These are not words that he's trying to obliterate his church. These are not words that he's, he's trying to make his church sinfully scared or whatever. Rather, Jesus in his love for his people, in his love for his church, he gives this sobering reality and this critical warning. Our Christ, our Savior, our mediator, our Messiah is so Tender and he's so loving and he's not willing to compromise the truth. And so he gives this warning here. The second thing I wanted to mention first is this is Christ saturated. The second thing I wanted to mention as we begin this is this reality. The people that Jesus is referring to in this text, they are deceived. Now, we'll develop this in just a moment, but I cannot be clear enough with this. These people in this text are deceived because they give an argument. So in verse 21, you know, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. And verse 22, they don't accept it. They actually give an argument. They give an argument. In other words, they think that they have a reason that they ought to be in heaven. Like, wait a second, Jesus. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, here's the argument. Do we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Why do they bring the argument? Because they're deceived. They see heaven. They see the celestial city. They see the saints enjoying the eternal rest. And they say, that's where I'm supposed to be. But they're deceived. In other words... You have to embrace this reality. I don't say this to scare you. You have to embrace the reality that it is possible for a person to be deceived about his or her salvation. It is possible even in this room for you to be deceived about your salvation. 
But you say, well, no way. I know I'm not deceived, but let me ask you this. How do you know? Because do you think that deceived people know that they're deceived? Right? If a deceived person knows that they're deceived, they are then no longer deceived. Right? And so, you need to consider this sobering reality today. We want to handle this text with care and with wisdom, but we need to consider what our Lord Jesus is teaching in this passage. So, let me from this passage give us four improper responses to Christ. Number one. Four improper responses to Christ. Number one. Just knowing about Jesus. Improper response number one. Well, I know about Jesus. When you talk about Jesus, I know the stories. I know about Jesus and Zacchaeus. I know about Jesus feeding the 5,000. I know about Jesus walking on the water. I know about Jesus dying on the cross. I know about Jesus raising again from the dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know about Jesus. Verse 21, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, they don't look at him and say, they don't call him some other name of some other God. They, they call him Lord. They seem to recognize him. It's not enough, in other words, to outwardly confess that Jesus is Lord. This is not enough. And in fact, it's a gross misunderstanding of Romans 10, 9, and 10. These people outwardly confess that Jesus is Lord. They, they say that, right? They don't call him Bob. They don't call him buddy. They don't call him friend. They say Lord. They call him Lord. Verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So it's not enough. What I'm saying is it's not enough to just profess that someone is Lord or that Jesus is Lord. They're making, in other words, an orthodox confession. They're not calling Jesus sir, right? They recognize recognize him as Lord and judge and all that. And, and, And the reality is there will be many people who profess that Jesus is Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. Listen, 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 listen. On that day, many. Many. The word many is the same word used in verse 13. Uh, go back in your Bibles to verse 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are what? Many. Many. So those who go toward destruction are many. Those who stand before the Lord with a false profession, the Lord says, are many. Here's what I'm saying this morning. If you walk around today and you say that Jesus is Lord, you just profess that he is Lord, you've at some point in your life, you felt sorrow. Maybe you felt bad for your sin. Maybe you even felt conviction for your sin. I'm telling you that there in and of itself is not enough for a person to be in heaven. Number two, number one, just knowing about Jesus. Number two, merely thinking you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Number one, just knowing about Jesus. Number two, merely thinking that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Okay, here's the point here. Notice how the people are talking to Jesus. They're not just calling him Lord. What are they calling him? Lord, Lord. Now that's important. Because throughout the Bible, 
we see that when you use a person's name twice, it's a, uh, it's a, a, a Jewish Hebrew uh, reality. When you use a person's name twice, you're often communicating deep personal intimacy. I'm going to read to you some verses. You'll, you'll recognize these. Genesis 22, 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. Exodus 3, 4. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. 1 Samuel 3.10, and the Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. Luke 13.34, Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. Or Luke 22.31, Jesus says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan Demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Okay, here's what I'm saying. In our text now, the people are not simply calling Jesus Lord, but they say his name twice. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, listen, listen, listen. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. In other words, they're communicating not merely that they acknowledge that he's Lord, but they're communicating to him as though they have an intimate and personal relationship with Jesus. They they more than merely knew about Jesus, but they believe in and of themselves that they know Christ personally. They don't just call him Lord. They say, Lord, Lord. But according to Jesus... Right. In other words, they're not just saying Jesus is Lord. In other words, in one sense, they're actually saying Jesus is my Lord. But according to Jesus, according to the Bible. That's not enough. Lots of people know about Jesus. Lots of people in their own minds know Jesus in a personal way. They call him in one sense, friend. What a friend I have in Jesus. They sing. But according to this text, Jesus is not their friend. So we've told people, you just need to ask Jesus into your heart. And so we've funneled people through a through a system, a, like a machine, like, okay, here we go. Ask Jesus into your heart, boom. I asked Jesus in my heart, you really meant it? I really meant it, boom, you're saved, on with your life. Boom, here, come here, you want to be saved? Yep, ask Jesus into your heart. Ask you in your heart, yeah, yeah, you meant it? Okay, boom, Saved. Next, next, next. And we funnel all these people through. But the reality is that phrase is not in the Bible. You're never told to ask Jesus in your heart. Not once. And you're never told to seek a personal relationship with Jesus. Not once. And these people in this text think that they have a personal relationship with Jesus. And what is he going to do? He's going to send them to hell. He says, I never, not that you knew me and we, you know, got, uh, things went wrong. No, no, I, verse 23, I never knew you. Okay, yeah, but Quattro, I'm good. Because I just feel Jesus in me. I know that I have Jesus in my spirit. Okay, you do how? How do you know that? Because it is possible that your own love of self has deceived you into a false sense 
of security. And why do I say that? Not to be harsh, not to be harsh, not to, not to make you stay up at night and say, it's never, never in my desire to make a genuine Christian doubt their salvation. However, the Bible pushes us time and again. Second Peter 1.10. Peter says, make your calling and election sure. I think it's second Corinthians 13.5 where Paul says, examine yourself to see whether or not you're in the faith. And so it's not my, it's not my desire to make a genuine believer doubt their salvation, but it is my desire as your pastor and as one who loves you to not see any of us, any of you stand before God and to be one of these people who said, not just Lord, but Lord, Lord. But because is it possible that even your coming here today is part of this grand scheme of self-deception? Whereby because you come to church, you walk away and you just feel better about yourself. Because you've checked God off the box. These people looked at Jesus and they called Him Lord and they called Him Lord, Lord. And He turns them away. Number three, false ways to come to Christ. Number three, doing religious activities with an unregenerate heart. Doing religious activities with an unregenerate heart. Going through the motions of religion without being born again. Now, I just want to tell you verse 22. That's impressive list. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. Now, look, look, like they're not just like, hey, didn't we give a little extra money to the guy on the exit? No, that's not what they say. They say, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These people are claiming to have preached in Jesus name. They're claiming to cast out demons in Jesus' name. They're, they're claiming to do many mighty works in Jesus' name. Okay, for our day, we'd say something like this. They were a good Southern Baptist. They prayed for the offering in Jesus' name. They give their tithes and offerings in Jesus' name. They sing songs in Jesus' name. They go on mission trips in Jesus' name. They teach Sunday school in Jesus' name. They come to church and sit in their pew every Sunday, or in this case, in the chair, every Sunday in Jesus' name. Look at all that they're doing in Jesus' name. But you know what Jesus says about that? He calls him in verse 23, look at that, workers of lawlessness. In other words, if you don't get this right, then all this stuff that you're doing is actually, it's not getting you any closer to heaven. It's actually the opposite. It's actually heaping up more condemnation upon you. Jesus essentially says to them, all your mighty works, all these things that you're doing, all the money that you thought that you're, you're going to give to the North American Mission Board, all the efforts that you were going to give to the mission trip, all the Sunday school lessons you stayed up Saturday night to come up with, all of these things are lawlessness to me. You're a worker of iniquity. Matthew Mead noted, in his book, The Almost Christian Discovered, the ground of many a man's engaging in religion is the trouble of his conscience. So in other words, what Mead notes is some people are involved in church just enough to ease their conscience. Or maybe they put, go headlong in to church to ease their conscience into thinking that, that they're pleasing God. And it's actually amazing and alarming how many outwardly righteous deeds people can do without being born again. And I'll give you an example. 
I have a family member. I have a family member who at one time was in the Peace Corps. Well, I thought when I was growing up, I was like, boy, that's really neat. This person is out there helping people. That's really, really neat. Well, this family member is completely unregenerate. Okay, what I'm saying is there are organizations, there are people out there today that are, quote unquote, helping humanity, quote unquote, doing good deeds, but they have no new heart. And this is a reality, not just in outward organizations, but even within the church, as we see in our text. There are preachers, there are Sunday school teachers, there are pastors, there are deacons, there are stay-at-home moms, there are hard-working dads that all fit in this category. There is a way to have given your life to these things and to not have eternal life. I will declare to them, verse 23 says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. There is a crisis. Let me speak to pastors of my own um, ministry, there are there is a crisis of unconverted pastors in our day. I'm convinced of this. That is, there are people out there today who, who might be well-meaning in terms of the world. They want to help people. They want to see people off drugs. They want to see happy marriages and happy children. But, but, but they're not converted. They're really about the crowds. And they do not follow Christ. And this is a reality for pastors. So that leads me to my fourth point. Claiming to be born again apart from a holy life. So, number one, just knowing about Jesus. Number two, merely thinking that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Number three, doing religious activities with an unregenerate heart. And then number four, claiming to be born again, but no holy life. And this sets us in on our distinctive. It's very clear. It's very clear. It's like so plain. It's so plain. On the day of judgment, who enters the kingdom of heaven? Only those who've been saved by grace through faith in Christ. But what this life looks like is in verse 21. By the way, this is in the context of what? The Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is showing what kingdom living looks like. Not that we live this way in order to get into the kingdom, but because we've been born again, because we are poor in spirit, because purity of heart because of these things the beatitudes back in matthew 5 because of grace this is the way we now live so look at verse 21 and don't miss the point i'm rambling on here don't miss the point that's so plain in verse 21 not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but okay who who will enter the kingdom of heaven the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven now, now we we actually do uncompromisingly affirm that Christ does dwell in believers' hearts. We saw that in Ephesians 3. And we affirm that believers do have a personal relationship with Jesus. However, we understand the biblical teaching here that those who have encountered Christ in a saving way, those who have been born again by the power of God, they have a life that is now actually and really and, and actually does live... New. Look at verse 21 and and ask yourself this question. Does verse 21 say that they know the will of the Father? Or does verse 21 say that they do the will of the Father? It says very plainly, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now we understand that it's the will of the Father to repent 
Acts 17 says that God commands all men everywhere to repent. So it is the will of the Father that we repent and put our faith in Christ. And it's also the will of the Father that we we do what He's shown us in His Word and we live holy lives. So, so let me give you an example. Around here all the time. And maybe some of you will say this to me today. I doubt you'll say it to me today after the message, but 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 maybe you'll you'll say something like this. Because I run into people all the time that that do this. I know what I need to be doing. Quattro, I know I need to be reading the Bible. This weekend, I ran into a man who I saw him twice. It's like one of those things. I saw him in one place, and we kind of had informal chit-chat. You know how it goes. Then I saw him again in another place within like 10 minutes. And I, I was honestly like, okay, Lord. I get it. I know what I'm supposed to do. I avoided it the first time. You've been gracious. So this is what I did. So I talked to him. I pulled him aside and I said, hey, man, I'm not trying to beat you up. I'm not trying to, you know, cast undue judgment on you or something like that. But let me tell you something. Now that we've ran into each other twice. This person professes to be a believer. You have to get your family in church. You have to, you're the head of your home. You have to get them in church. I love you, man. And I'm not saying this in a way to beat you up. I'm just telling you that you've got to lead in this and you've got to get your family in church. And he says to me, he looks down at the floor and he says, I know. I know. You're not beating me up. I'm beating myself up. I know. I know I need to do this. I know. But do you understand that there is a difference between knowing and what? And doing. I don't know where this man is, this Lord today. It is my prayer that he heeded my counsel and has taken his family to church. But you'll not be able to stand before the Lord one day and say, I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew what the Bible said. I knew theology. I knew I was supposed to be in church. I knew I was supposed to read the Bible more. I knew I was supposed to seek you in prayer. I knew I was supposed to give. I knew I was supposed to live a holy life. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. But knowing without doing is condemnation. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does. The will of my Father who is in heaven. I want to demonstrate this more. If it's okay. It's going to be okay. We're going to go to another passage now. First Peter. Let me demonstrate this more. First Peter. First Peter chapter 1. Okay. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. Now this is Peter's letter to the churches. To the exiles. He calls them the elect exiles. And Peter says this in First Peter chapter 1 verse 14. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now the context is in, this is in the context of not people work, trying to work for their salvation, but in a people who've been born again. How do I know? Look at, go back to 1 Peter 1, 3. 
Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, the language is very important here. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter is talking to people who he believes are regenerate. So, so if we can understand these verses correctly, I think it'll help us clear up a tremendous amount of confusion about what it means to be a Christian. So when you get back to verse 14, this is now a person who's born again. They've been encountered the gospel. They have been made new. And now verse 14, Peter says that they are obedient children. Okay, we've been born again into a new family. If you're not a Christian, you're not a child of God, right? Everyone's a child of God. You'll not find that in one place in the Bible. It's only those who are born again who are adopted into God's family. Okay, If you're not a Christian, God is your enemy. And if you stay in that state, you'll face him in judgment. But in the gospel, God has offered terms of peace and a new family in Christ. You must accept those terms of peace and repent of your sins and believe on Christ. Now, in and of yourself, you will never do that. You will never do that. You will never repent in and of your own power. Not because not God is not letting you like, I really, 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 really want to repent, but God won't let me. No, you won't repent because you don't want to repent. That's a huge theological bombshell, right? Do you know why people more, do you know why more people aren't believers today? And you might say, well, it's because the church is messed up or something. And, and maybe there's some reality and some, some application we'd want to make there. But let me just lay it to you like this. Do you know why more people aren't Christians today? Do you know why churches aren't more full today? Do you know why more people in Perryville don't follow Christ today? They don't want to. They don't want to. You, you, you this morning, you may know the Father's will, but you don't actually desire it. Right? I know what I'm supposed to do, but I don't want to do it. Right? And so the God of every unregenerate heart is the God of self. And, and you will never let the God of the Bible truly reign on your throne of heart. No, sir. No way. You're not getting in here. I may, I may outwardly check some boxes so that you, I feel like you get off my back, but there's no way I will ever let you reign on the throne of my heart. But for the believer, what has happened? First Peter 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Listen, listen, listen. He has caused us. He has caused us. He, that is God, has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In other words, God, for believers, in his great mercy and his steadfast love, in his sovereign grace, has kicked down your walls of hostility. You're never getting in here, God. God said, watch this. And he caused you in his grace. I think about that just for a moment. You ought to pray right now. We all ought to pray right now. Why were your children and grandchildren yesterday, why were they not in attendance at the drag queen story hour? Not because you're better. That's where we deserve our children to be. The only reason they weren't there is because of grace. The only reason you're here in this building this morning is not because you're better or you're smarter. It's only because of God's sovereign and kind and wonderful grace. God in His mercy blew right through your obstinacy without your permission and He caused you to be born again. 
And he showed you the glories of Christ. He has shown you the wretchedness of his sin. He has drawn you to the Lord Jesus. And you have come then, as the confession says, most willingly and humbly and repented and trusted Christ by grace through faith. And so now what? Verse 15. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy. Verse 14, it says, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be conformed to former passions. Now, in First Peter, the word passions is used about four times. And it just means strong, immoral desires or lust. So Peter is saying this because as believers, we have that old man that still calls out to us sometimes. Right? We heard the cell phone ringing a minute ago. It's, that's a good illustration. The old man dials up our number and calls us. So, hey, what you doing? Why don't you check this out today? Don't you want to look at this? Hey, that guy cuts you off in traffic. Come on. If anything deserves a dirty word, that does. And so the old man calls out to us. Greed and anger and jealousy and sexual immorality. Love for the world. Feeding the flesh. These are the things which are characteristic of unbelievers. And they still cry out to us at times. And so Peter says, no, you cannot do that. Do not be conformed to those former passions. And and instead, verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Verse 15, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in what? This is why it's important that you're reading the Bible with me, because I would make a kind of a joke here. I would say something like, as he who is holy, is, uh, as he who's called you is holy, you also be holy in some of your conduct. And you might think that that's what it actually says. Or he is who called you is holy, be holy in most of your conduct. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say in some of your conduct. It doesn't say in your church life, be holy, but don't worry about it. Work. In church and home, in church and work, be holy. It doesn't matter what you watch on television at your home. That doesn't matter. No, no, that's not what he says. He says, as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in what? Not some, not most, but all. All. Holiness is an attribute of a Christian that permeates every area. We are to live differently. We are to live distinct from the world. Is it not alarming to you? Is it not alarming to you? It ought to be. To, it's difficult to tell the difference between believers and unbelievers in our day. This should not be the case. Has the gospel lost its power in Perryville? Well, the gospel's just not powerful here, right? Has God lowered his, his expectation and, and work and believers? Has, has the Lord ran out of grace? Well, what is, what is happening here? No, no, no. The issue is that for many, we have separated being a believer from a holy life. Well, we've created this strange class of Christians that can be saved, but are never holy in all their conduct. And I tell you that I've been part of funeral after funeral after funeral. This person was not in church for 40 years. But I remember when they were eight and they asked Jesus in your heart. So I can't wait to see them again in heaven. And then the reality is they are suffering God's judgment. I don't say this to make you weep for those gone on before. I say it because it's a sobering reality for us. This is outrageous. It is a damnable lie from the pit of hell. And the church in America today must wake up. We send so many people patting them on the back, patting our numbers, telling people on social media, and we send them on their way to hell. Because they've said the right words. And their life, though, remains unchanged. 
Friends, this is not a work salvation. Rather, it's the reality of what God does in a believer. When he brings about the new life, writes his law upon our heart, he's creating a holy people for himself. Is this characteristic of you? Is this something that you strive after? Do you seek to align your life with Christ's teaching? Do you desire fellowship with Christ daily? Are you walking in newness of life? The the life of faith in Christ is a holy life. Do you love the local church? Because because in the Bible Belt, man, if there's one thing about my ministry, and it's not that I've been in ministry that long, I... I started ministry, I guess, officially in 2006. So however long that is. Not far away from 20 years, 17 years. And if there's one thing that I could identify about my ministry that's gotten me in more trouble than anything else (laughs) is to say this. You know, Christians go to church. John could not be any plainer. That is, the Apostle John. Could not be any plainer in 1 John 3, 14. He says this. We know. Okay, pause. Not we think, not we feel. We know. We know, 1 John 3, 14, that we have passed from death to life. Not think, not feel. We know. We know we've passed from death to life. Why? Because we have a K-Love sticker on our car. No, not what he said. Because one time we felt a tingling go up our spine. No, it's not what he says. He says, and check it out for yourself, 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life because, King James, we love the brethren. We love the brothers. We love the local church. So, so listen very carefully. If these things aren't true, it doesn't matter how many emotional experiences. It doesn't matter. You know, we uh, churches, some churches still do this. It's just nonsense at the end of service. Okay, here we go. We're going to play 15 songs until someone comes forward and cries their eyes out at the altar. And then we can proclaim that they got saved. It doesn't matter how many emotional experiences you've had. It doesn't matter if you felt a, you know, chill bumps. It doesn't matter if you think that you have inner peace. If you are ignoring, listen... It doesn't, I'm talking to you. You say, he's not talking to me. No, no, he's not talking to me. No, no, listen. I'm talking to all of us in here. I'm talking to my wife. I'm talking to my friends. I'm talking to my family. I'm talking to my parents. I'm talking to my children. I'm talking to every single person in here, whether it's the first time you've ever visited, whether you're a member, I'm talking to myself. I'm talking to all of us in here. And what I'm saying is, it doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter if you think that you're safe. If you are ignoring God's word, and if you're ignoring God's people, and if you are ignoring God's ways, then you have invented your own version of Christianity. And and, and, and yes, it, it may have some similar features to biblical Christianity. However, ultimately, your version of Christianity is only going to lead you to stand before Christ one day and He will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. You must be born again. And the only way to be born again is the power of God in the gospel. Listen, the holiness that God accepts is that of Christ for us. And then those who rest in Christ. So in other words, we're positionally holy because of Christ. And and then those who rest in Christ, we seek to by grace 
live lives separated from the ways of the world. In all of our conduct, the text says, in our home, in our work, on the golf course. Like, man, I got to be holy everywhere. But when I get the golf course, you know, I'll, I'll cheat a stroke or whatever. Or I'll, 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 I'll act a fool. No, no, everywhere and everything, God's people are called to be holy because we've been born again. We seek the will of the Father because we're in Christ. Holiness cannot be ultimately attained by unbelievers. It's only Christians. So, so Peter's telling us here that Christians have been called with a holy calling and, and, and are, have been commanded to be holy and that God himself is the, is the example. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's verse 16. And, and the reality is in the gospel, God has made provision for our holiness. When we're born again through the living and abiding word of God, what I'm saying is we're actually changed. And here my issue, another appeal to you. If you're living in the style of Christianity today that says, I hear you, Quattro. Okay, this time I'm really going to try hard only in a week or two to fall on your face again. Then what you need to do is you need to look to Christ. Quit resting in what you can do and trust what he has already done and is able to do in and through you. Being born again creates fruitful holiness. Okay, back to Matthew 7 real quick. Back to Matthew 7. Now, Jesus says in Matthew 7, I'll just read verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So, bringing it home. A distinctive of Perryville Second Baptist Church is that we will not tolerate unholy Christianity. We believe in biblical holiness. We believe it is the will of the Father that salvation is found only in Christ. We believe that the Lord Jesus fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. That He bore our sins on Calvary, bearing the full measure of God's wrath against us. He died and He was buried. He rose again on the third day in triumph. He is now seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And He rules and He reigns the universe with all authority. And listen to me very carefully here. I don't care what your sins are. I don't care where what it is that you have done. I don't care if you're the rankest idolater in this room this morning or the most appalling hypocrite. I don't care if you are the most immoral person in Prairieville, Arkansas today or even on the planet or if you're the most self-righteous. I don't care what it is that you, where it is you have been, what it is that you have done, where it is that you are right now because this is what I know about the gospel. The Lord Jesus saves. He saves. He really saves. The vilest offender, the prostitute, the homosexual, the self-righteous, greedy jerk, the white-collar crimes, the blue collar crimes. Jesus Christ saves. He saves. And we must look to Him. And we must trust His grace. And we must take this gospel to the nations. And we must say the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And God in His power right now can remove your heart of stone and He can replace it with a heart of flesh and you can't stop Him. And so we preach Christ. And even in this room, I call upon every soul to repent and believe the Gospel. Will you have Christ? And then we push this further. Those who truly call upon the name of the Lord desire to follow His will. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And so, we don't just know the will of God, we follow it. It's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, I'll just paraphrase it, but he says, The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
And by the way, he doesn't just talk about the sexually immoral, though he does talk about the sexually immoral. He talks about adulterers, men who practice homosexuality. But he also talks about greedy people. He also talks about thieves. He talks about drunkards. He talks about revilers, swindlers. He says none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. None of them. Do you believe that? These people will not inherit the kingdom of God. If these things describe your life, sexual, sin, thievery, whatever, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But this is what Paul says in verse 11. That's who you, First Corinthians 6, 11. That's who you used to be. He says it this way, actually, in the ESV. Such were some of you. You used to be that way. You used to be a thief. You used to be greedy. You used to be a jerk. You used to be sexually immoral. You used to be an adulterer. You used to watch that junk on television. You used to let the filth come out of your mouth. That's who you used to be. But guess what? That ain't the way you are anymore. Quattro's version there. You ain't like that anymore. Why? Christ. Oh, Christ. Our Lord Jesus has sanctified you. He set you apart. He's cleansed you. You have been made new. And this is what the power of the gospel does. It takes who we were and it throws it into the sea of forgetfulness because your sins now, oh, they were many, but His mercy is more and they've been cast off forever and atoned for in Christ. And then the gospel takes who you are and places you in Christ. Oh, what a glorious gospel of grace. It's freely offered even here this morning. Christ is yours if you'll have him. We unapologetically believe here that those who are truly born again now persevere in grace and holiness. Not that we don't stumble. Not that we don't fall. Not that we don't fight sin and succumb to it. Even weekly, daily, we struggle But genuine Christians desire to be a holy people because we follow Christ and we ultimately will be hated by the world. And I remind us again, holiness is not, you don't get to define the holiness and neither do I. It's defined by God's book. We don't add to it. We don't take away from it. And the local church is non-negotiable to this for so many reasons. In, In the local church, we have a group of people that seize their lives and let us know if our lives are consistent with the scriptures. We exhort every one another Every day, as long as it's called a day, so, so that there not be an unbelieving heart in any of us. So, so, so we're in each other's lives and we encourage one another. And we, we look and we, and when we see a person going that way, we say, Hey brother, don't you, you don't need to be going that way. But, but American Christianity says, Hey, stay out of my life. This is a relationship with me and Jesus. But biblical Christianity comes in and says, The local church has been given to you to help make sure that you're in the faith and to love you and to keep you accountable and to walk with you. And this is who we are. This is who we are. Not because this is what Quattro thinks we ought to be. Please hear me. This is Christ's vision for His church. We affirm biblical holiness here. We prize it. We expect it. We strive for it. We encourage it all by grace. By the way, you can't beat. Like You ever tried this? I have. You can't beat biblical holiness into people. Right? So like... Okay, right? Now you're going to be holy. No, you can't beat biblical, but, but you can grace it into them. 
And we're, we'll talk, we need to hold another accountable. We'll talk about church divisions, all that in a later sermon. But we also, what I'm saying is we need to come alongside one another in grace and love and compassion and patience and spur one another along in the faith. Because it is our desire for the glory of Christ and for the love of one another that not one person among us would stand before the Lord Jesus and be accounted in this many in the text that he would not say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Okay, land the plane. Where does that leave you this morning? I I can't answer that question for you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, do, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Will you take this seriously? Is this you? Your first temptation at hearing something like this is to either dismiss it or maybe cover it up all the more. Well, I might be a hypocrite, but I can't, I can't let anyone know that. But, but, but here's what I'm saying. Will you this day, in the providence of God, you're here, you're hearing this sermon. Will you this day hear the call of grace? Here is Christ before you. He's ready to receive sinful men and women and boys and girls. God hates your lawless deeds. God hates your hypocrisy. But before you this day is the grace of our Lord Jesus. So the biblical admonition to you is to repent. Turn from your sins. Turn from your false ways. Turn from your wrong ideas about Christianity and come to Christ. Commit to Christ in repentance and faith. Commit to his body, the local church, and then commit to God's way of holiness. And that's what I'm calling... The church, let us commit to God's way of holiness together. Let us never compromise these truths. And maybe we'll look weird to the eyes of a watching world. And maybe the world will hate us. And maybe they'll make fun of us. And maybe they'll, they'll say pejorative things about us out there in the community. But so what? I'm not going to stand before them one day. I will stand before the king of this book. So will you. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us to understand the sobering reality that we're taught today in the Bible? Lord, we don't want to go home and unduly or unnecessarily beat ourselves up. That's not what we're trying to do. But we want to take seriously biblical Christianity. We want to live the way that you would have us to live, the way that your Bible says. It's actually so plain, the way that your Bible calls us to live. Help us to love one another and encourage one another to hold each other accountable. Lord, I pray today, if there's a child, if there's an old man or an old woman or a young man or a young woman or middle-aged man or middle-aged woman, a teenage boy or girl, God, if there is one soul here who thinks that they are Christian when in reality they're not, would you show that to them today? Would you, by your kind mercy and your steadfast love, cause them to be born again? I pray that they would look to Christ in repentance and faith and trust him. 
I pray the church would be challenged and encouraged and strengthened in holiness. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with me?